Ralph over there? Yes, it is. <laughs> I haven't seen him since he raced off to that big school reunion. Well, marrying into a ready-made family will do that whoa, whoa, to a man. Ralph got married? Yeah, to that woman up front. Those are her kids. I can't think of her name. Hey, the Jacobs boy. He is getting very tall. Wrong boy, dear. The Jacobs boy is over there talking to... Oh, what is his name? You know, he's the newest staff member. I can't remember what ministry he works with. That guy? He's on staff here? The guy with the mustache? Just like his father. Jerry? It's Harry. Oh. The dad or the mustache? Connecting with people isn't always easy. But being able to put a name with a face right when you need it is a great way to start. Children with parents, staff with ministries they oversee, it brings our church family into focus. Hon, let's sign up today to have our picture made for the new church directory. It only takes a minute to sign up. Yeah, and let's hope that everyone else does the same thing so we know who they are. Sign up today for a church directory photo appointment. Remember, it's hard to build community when you don't know each other's names. And everyone being part of our new church directory by Olin Mills is a big step in putting names with faces. If Prop 8 fails on November 4th, all public school children will be affected. It's time for everyone to get involved. When you vote on protecting marriage this November, your vote will affect every family in your state, including yours. Hello, I'm Tony Perkins, President of the Family Research Council here in Washington, D.C. You may be asking yourself, how will same-sex marriage affect my family? Well, based on the evidence, everything changes when same-sex marriage becomes legal. If it is legalized, then it must be taught as normal, acceptable, and moral behavior in every public school. Don't believe me? It's already happened in Massachusetts. That means public schools in every grade, even kindergarten, must teach your children to accept same-sex marriage. This really confuses children. David, appreciate you and Tanya inviting us to come uh, into your home. I've been looking forward to sitting down and talking to you about this because I think this is such an important story and I think parents need to know what's happening in our schools. The beginning of 2005, our son Jacob was going into kindergarten and he came home with a diversity book bag. And in the diversity book bag was a book entitled Who's in a Family by Robert Scutch. And that introduces children to same-sex households. Now, wait a minute, let me be clear. Your son is in kindergarten. Yes. And he was given a book about homosexuality and marriage? Yes. What, what was your first reaction when you saw this? When I saw the book, I was... Um quite upset that uh, they would couch this as diversity and include it in a diversity book bag and, and not give me notification that they were going to be um, introducing this topic of homosexual relationships and homosexual behavior and uh, to my young five-year-old child. I was, I was um, very upset. I have the book right here. Who's in a Family? It introduces children to such things as Clifford and her dad's partner, Henry. This is what they sent home with your five-year-old? That's correct, Tony. After the diversity book bag came home, we realized that the intention of the administrators and teachers was to affirm these relationships and gay marriage in the minds of children. When we went into the school, what we requested is parental notification 
when these issues are brought up by adults within the school and the option to opt our child out of this type of indoctrination. So we didn't think, um, number one, it was, it was appropriate to discuss that with our five-year-old and that if we ever felt it was necessary to, to have that discussion with our son, we would choose the timing and the manner in which to discuss it with him. Um, and then uh, she said, well, she, she had checked with the administrators and, had, and they had said that this was not a parental notification issue and in fact that any adult in the school uh, could discuss homosexual families and homosexual issues with our children. One of the reasons they give is they said same-sex marriage is legal in Massachusetts therefore we can broach it anytime with your child and when they are putting forward that it's equal they're putting forward that it's a morally equal alternative and affirming it in the minds of children. Now these are young impressionable children and they know very well that there are many parents that do not hold these beliefs but irrespective of that in an intolerant manner and in an aggressive manner they are putting forward that we as parents do not even have the right to know what they're saying to our children. So when she would not um, acknowledge our parental rights in this area we then went to our Judeo-Christian beliefs and our, our faith and said, well, you wish to affirm homosexuality um, to our son. You're presenting that which is sin as though it is not to our son, and we cannot allow that. And um, at that point, she reiterated, this is not a parental notification issue. It is our sacred duty as parents to guide our child. What they did and what they were doing at the point where they won't allow parental notification or the option to opt out is they were taking the parental role for themselves and they had no tolerance for the notion that parents have the right to be the primary directors of the child's upbringing and moral education and I said I'm prepared to sit here all night until I see some form of accommodation as a parent to make a, a long story short, the accommodation they gave was to put me in handcuffs and send me to jail. I couldn't believe that they were willing to arrest my husband because my David, because my husband and I just want to print a notification. We want to raise our children to know God, and God has blessed us with the sacred responsibility to raise them for him to know him and to know his truth. I was willing to see how far this administration would go in denying us our rights and squashing parental rights. And they were willing to handcuff a father and send him to jail. Um, it was a six by eight cell, uh, filthy. Um, but you know, I felt I didn't have a choice at that point in order to fulfill my role and duty as a father. <laughs> Parents need to stand their ground. If they intend to have a war over our parental rights, battling for the hearts, minds, and souls of our children, then let it begin here. Do you see the implications of same-sex marriage being legalized in your state? It affects every family and every child, including yours. Every household with children will find themselves dealing with same-sex marriage discussions with their kids. 
So, when you cast your vote this November, know the full implications of the legalization of same-sex marriage. It affects every family, including yours. So vote to protect marriage, because how you vote today affects your family tomorrow. Registration forms for you this morning. Uh, do we still have some available there, guys? Uh, if you are not registered to vote, I think you've seen a plain case for why you need to get registered right away. Um, if you need a voter registration form or you have moved since the last time you voted, you need to re-register. And uh, <clears throat> if all you do is register for one reason, and that is to vote yes on Proposition 8, then I encourage you to do that. If you are registered and uh, you have influence, then influence others. The last day to register, I believe, is October 20. So we need to move some people along. And uh, if you turn 18 on October the 19th, you can register. All right? Or on the 20th even. Uh, I noticed that I was gone this week, but when I got back in my uh, mail, it was my absentee ballot. I'm ready to vote at my kitchen table this weekend. And so that's the altar call for the message you just heard is to vote yes on Proposition 8. Amen? Hallelujah. Gloria a Dios. Amen. Amen. See, let me just strike it further. He said it. I want to reemphasize it. That is that the laws are already on the books in the Family Code of California that whatever is legal in the area of marriage is what will be taught in the school. It's mandated. That means that these books are soon coming to your school if Proposition 8 fails. In fact, it has been broadcast and forecast that um, if we do not pass Proposition 8, then what I'm about to do here this morning could be illegal within two to five years. You don't think we need cell groups? You don't think cell groups and home groups are important? See, the administration of our country and persecution can come overnight with a few wrong moves. And the hammer could come right down on top of this building and make this illegal. Not just not tax exempt anymore, just illegal. For me to stand up and read out of the scriptures, the passages of the Bible that says homosexuality is a sin, is now classified as a hate crime. And then they cuff me and take me off the jail and send you home. Hopefully you'll go home. You say, oh, you're, you're extreming, you're, uh, you're radical. No, it's already happening. You just saw it. The Parkers have become the, uh, the center focal point of what's happening right now in California and Florida especially. In Florida, they have to have 60% of the vote plus one. We have to have 50% plus one. And this is way beyond a political issue. There's an agenda of darkness 
that is flooding in onto our, our nation. There is a, an agenda that comes driven right from the pit of hell. And it's, uh, we're going to talk about it this morning in worldview and the question of what is man. Is that there is an agenda of a darkness from Satan himself to destroy anything that looks like Christianity. He hates Jesus. The devil hates Jesus. There's no affection for him at all. And if you look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus, or follow Jesus, then you're on the hate list. And there is a movement that comes from hell that has no other reason to exist except for to stamp out anything that bears the image of Christ. This isn't about America or about Africa, or about Australia, or about political geo stuff. It's about the church. And it's time for us to put up our dukes. We're in a democracy. We can vote. And that's how you put up your dukes. In this fight, put up your dukes. Amen? You know, show up. Get your absentee ballot out. Make sure you punch it. Get your friends, drive up and down your street. And, and in fact, I'm going to send around this tablet right here. Jim, Dennis, would you please stand up, sir? You didn't know I was going to do this, but we did this last night too. Jim is helping to organize. Uh, you, you want to talk about what you're doing? No, no. Rather than me? Okay. All right. This is Jim. You can sit down. Thanks. I'm going to send this around. This is just a little pad uh, to help with Proposition 8. There are some efforts being made locally to uh, go door to door and just say, hi, uh, we're here to talk about Prop 8, where do you stand? Are you a yes vote or are you a no vote? Are you undecided? And then we'll just make a note of that. And then just go, 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 go. Second wave is to go back to those who are undecided and say perhaps you need a little more information about where this is going. Maybe we can help convince you to come out and vote on yes on 8. And to those that are adamantly opposed to Proposition 8, I think there's probably, I don't know, spray paint teams or burning down houses no, <laughs> just kidding. No, uh, just reasonable. There's going to be reasonable conversation and love and the presence of Jesus to stand at their door and be polite and honest. Second wave, go back to it, uh, convince. I'm going to pass it around. If you'd like to help with this effort or find out more about it, then I'm going to get them to sign up on here and they can get in touch with you. Just make sure that circulates all the way, would you? Okay. Um, so then third, the third wave would be something like this, that on election day at all the polls locally, it's required that the polling place list or pin up on the wall, uh, and I've seen this every time, we're, we're a polling place here. That, and so for our precinct in this area, I think we have five or 600 people registered in our precinct, the, the, all their names will be listed on this, these sheets of paper. And uh, by already going door-to-door and collecting who is for and who is against and who's undecided, We'll be able to compare the survey done with the hanging sheets of who's who and go in and be able to match up and say, you know what, these people are all yes on eight people and they haven't made it to the poll yet. Let's give them a call. Hey, do you need a ride? Are you still at home? Did you, uh, did you vote absentee? And we're going to make sure we get every vote that's available. So the third wave is called GOTV, G-O-T-V, which stands for Get Out the Vote. So if you know somebody that's yes on eight, you make sure you call them that day and say, did you vote? Did you go? Do you need a ride? Can I get you there? Uh, can we pick up your neighbors? And uh, the other teams will be out letting the air out of tires for no on eight. <laughs> Not. 
not going to do that. Uh, we have got to pass this in California. And if we don't, I'm going to tell you what, you better be in a cell group in the next couple of years. Because you're going to need it. Not because you have to hide, but because that's where the church is going to live underground. And it's going to multiply like crazy. You bring persecution on the church, and we're going to start figuring out what we really believe in a hurry. Amen? Amen. Amen. Open with Psalm chapter 8. I want to thank uh, Psalms. Psalms chapter 8. If you can't find Psalms, look for Palms. I heard a guy say that this week. It was really cute. Palms. Then you wonder why it's spelled wrong. Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible, basically. Chapter 8. Yeah, I just want to brag a little bit. Uh, I feel blessed. Uh, this last week I was in Baton Rouge, Baker, Louisiana, and had the privilege of being in a conference with Dr. Cho, largest church in the world. I heard Dr. Cho speak three times. I would like to say that he and I sat down and had lunch, but that's not going to happen, you know. Uh, also at the same conference was Mario Vega, pastor of the second largest church in the world. Now, I can say with Mario that he and I are actually friends. And I got to see him and his son, Jose, and I was so surprised to see Jose is taller than his dad now. And I'll be with them again in February. Uh, but Dr. Cho, Pastor Vega, Billy Joe Doherty, Benny Han, um, Marilyn Hickey. Basically, what I went to was a, a conference that was hosted by Church Growth International, which is Dr. Cho's uh, movement, and this was their North American conference, and all of his board was there. Now, you think board, he has about 60 people on his board, and they're all international movers and shakers of, of uh, really moving the kingdom of God all over the world. So there were just an extreme number of amazing people there, and teachers and workshops and preachers, and I was able to be in that conference all week last week, and it was just wonderful. And so... Feel good about that. When you come home, you want to preach everything you heard. You know, you said put it all in one message. Not at all possible. Not even going to try that this morning. Psalm 8. The question this morning in front of us is, what is man? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained or established strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The question posed as the psalmist, and Ed, I'm not going to sing and do all that stuff, and thank you. Um, I sang last night this psalm from an old school 
psaltery that we used to call it. But I'm not going to embarrass myself twice. Psalmist is looking at all of creation and he's seeing the largeness as we've talked about the transcendence of God. You know, how he is above all, in all, through all, and greater than all that we know. And how that he can also be very, very intimate with us. Amen? Amen. And uh, personal, even though he's transcendent. The psalmist is looking at all that God has done and then says, what is man? What is man that you're mindful of him why would you pay attention to us and specifically why would you even consider to have a relationship with me have you ever wondered why god loves you Mm -hmm. you know especially in those times of the hard times you say why would god ever love me i know i've had those times when i've said god a lightning bolt right that right here in this point of my life would be perfect just take me out I know how wretched I am. I know such a failure. I am. I have sinned against you and nobody else. And it'd just be good if you could take me out right here and send me on to heaven. Because I know I'm saved. But God doesn't choose to do that. His love is overwhelming. His grace and His mercies are new every morning. And He has answered the question, what is man? And we want to answer that question this morning, starting right at the first book of the Bible. And I'm going to preach all the way to the last one. So we're going to be here a while. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, when we're talking about spiritual and biblical worldview, as we are in and throughout our cell groups pursuing the truth project. And, and I'm, you're just, you know, I'm just going to pound on this, you know, that right on the back of this sheet of paper you got coming in is a menu of all of our lighthouses, our cell groups. And in those cell groups this week, we're going to be seeing in depth the presentation from Dr. Del Tackett on what is man. And understanding that if you have to answer this question from the very beginning to have a spiritual biblical world view and it is that which you will stand on when you make every decision you make it is so very important that we understand that in the beginning god decided to imprint and make us like himself now the the other side of that is if you don't believe that or if you don't understand that and if and i can say with confidence that i'm going to run into barriers in some of these minds that are sitting in front of me this morning because your mind is not going to want to accept what we're talking about why is that because you spent 12 years in public school you spent your growing up in formative years being taught from people like this that we saw this morning alternate worldviews. You've been uh, inculcated and pounded on over and over and over. So have I with information that comes from a secular worldview. And a secular worldview is real simple. It does this. It pulls God down off his throne and puts man there instead. And now you're God. And everything that happens, happens because of you. I can say real easy, I do not want to be God. I have a hard time managing my own life let alone being handed six and a half billion other people to keep track of at the same time. I can't be God. But there is that in us that wants to be more than like God. 
And mankind in general has pulled God down and put himself in place. And we got pounded with that for years. Over and over and over. And it's not done yet. It's not done. Right now it's happening to our children. It's happening to our grandchildren. And it's time for us to stand up and redeem the generations. And bring them back to a biblical worldview. And help us understand that the image that is in me is, looks like God to him. He said, let us, the Trinity, us, plural, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let's make man and let's make him like us. He didn't say, let's make them us. We are not God. We're his creation. And we are born uh, again. When we become born again, we're to reflect his glory or reflect his worship. We are to be responsive to our creator and find our fulfillment in him. Otherwise, you just have to believe that you're the product of some mindless, purposeless force. You just popped into being one day. You just crawled out of the mire or some amoeba began to grow in a different way and perfect itself over all these years and now there you are. I choose not to believe that. I choose not to believe that even though it's been told to me since I was born. Amen? In chapter 2 of Genesis... Verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils in the breath of life, and man became a living being. Hallelujah. My life comes from him. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have man, you have the garden. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And throughout the rest of this chapter, you find that Eve is created. Woman is formed out of the, out of the side of the man. And they become completers of one another. A helper comparable. This is God's creation. And there they are in the garden. Chapter 3, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And today he is still cunning. And see, this right here is where I know I'm going to clash with some minds because I've got statistical uh, surveys that tell me that 51% of pastors who are leading the churches in America have a biblical worldview. That means there are 49%, 49 out of every 100 pastors who are standing up in pulpits every weekend and leading the church do not believe in having, they do not have a spiritual biblical worldview. Let me just skip ahead and read this to you. Based on interviews with 601 senior pastors nationwide, this was done in January of 2004 by George Barna, representing a random cross-section of Protestant churches Barna reports that only half of the country's Protestant pastors, 51%, have a biblical worldview. What does that mean? Defining such a worldview as believing that absolute moral truth exists, that it is based upon the Bible, and having a biblical worldview on six core beliefs. Here's the six core beliefs. It just shocks me that you can't get 49 out of 100 pastors to believe these six things. One, the accuracy of biblical teaching. Two, the sinless nature of Jesus. Three, the literal existence of Satan. Four, the omnipotence and omniscience of God. 
all-powerful, all-knowing. Five, salvation by grace alone. Six, the personal responsibility to evangelize others. George Barna argues the most important point is that you can't give people what you don't have. You can't. I used to say you can't sell out of an empty wagon. You can't do it. So when I stand and say that there is an enemy who is given to us in chapter 3 who is more cunning and still remains more cunning today, I would say in 49% of pastors in America, he is successful in being cunning by convincing them that he doesn't even exist. Hello? And you may have sat under some of that teaching. You may have grown up in a place where Jesus was uh, presented right alongside of, you know, Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and things like that, Tooth Fairies and Jesus. And you came up with the answer at some point that, well, if found out about, you know, those others, that they were just myths and fairy tales, so Jesus is in the same category. Or you may have come to believe in Jesus, but you still hold an understanding in your mind, a stronghold in your mind that says the devil is not real. Listen, he's real. One of the guys that was teaching a session gave this illustration of driving home from the airport. He was teaching on spiritual warfare in this conference I was in. I'd never met this man. He was talking about driving home from the airport. He said, I let my wife drive because she's a better driver than me. She just does it better, so I always let her drive. And then we're driving home, nice and calm. Somebody got on her, her bumper real close, and so she pulled over and let him go by. And as they went by, right when he got next to the car, he made a, an obscene gesture at her. And as, as he went on around, he said, My wife just simply kept driving and then said, Just kill him, Lord. <laughs> just kill him. And the man said, I immediately thought, Where did my wife go? <laughs> we got home, went in the house. She was still sort of simmering, angry. And I didn't understand it. I went in the other room and I put my things down. I said, Lord, where did my wife go? He said, the spirit of anger and malice that was on that man when he made that gesture tried to transfer to your wife. He says, now you're the head of your home. You deal with it. He said, I went out and I said, honey, can I pray for you? She said, well, of course. So I laid my, she was sitting in church. So I laid my hand on her and I said, in the name of Jesus, I bind this foul spirit. And I cast it out right now. I remove it from my wife, loose her and let her go. And it was like, ching, and she was back. Now, you don't get stories like that when there's no devil. That stuff is not generated by humankind. That is generated from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, and you shall, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, I'm shortcutting. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In this moment when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and the simple instructions that he'd given them, they became what we call in a fallen state. They had fallen from their relationship with God. They had fallen from their first creation. And now they were known as rebels. And God, even in his grace, you know, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God, in his grace and his mercy, covered them himself with lambskins. But nonetheless, we were driven out. And I say we because the word Adam is not just a name. It means Adam. It is the word for mankind. And that's why we call him Adam. He is the first of all of mankind. So when we refer to him, we refer to us. And so driven out, he is driven out in the fallen state of of disfellowship with God. And so even though he was really created perfect, his fallen state leaves us with a desperately wicked heart. A heart that is anti-God. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And you feel free to put these up if you want, Ed. I'm not looking behind me, but this is the New King James. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as though one man, uh, excuse me, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Your grandfather, your great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, sinned. And it's in your genetic code. The psalmist said, I was shaped in iniquity. I was born in sin. It's in me when I come out. Right? I mean, think about your kids. And I thought about trying to illustrate this and use Jonathan this morning. I was going to put you in a little skit with me because he's my son. And I would have put something here and said, no. And said, Jonathan, uh, I'm going to be gone here for just a second. I'm going to put this right here. This isn't for you. This is for somebody else, so don't touch that. And as soon as I would turn away, not at his age now, of course, but as soon as I turned my back, he'd be reaching for it. And then I would say, oh, and he, hmm? I'd say, just remember, that's not for you. Oh, no, yeah, I know. Okay, and turn my back, and he's reaching. And turn around again, whoop. Third time away, he gets it. We'll say it's a piece of candy or something. He gets it and puts it in his mouth. And I turn around and he's, and he's trying to go. But it's gone. And we would have laughed at that little skit. We would have thought, oh, it's so cute. You know your kids. You can say, here's the whole world, but don't touch that. And what happens? It's like, don't ride your tricycle. Down the, you can be in the driveway and right. You can ride on the sidewalk and right here, but don't go past this line into the street. Okay? And then you go inside and you look out. They're looking to see where you are, and they're looking to where the line is. And they're just going over it. That's Adam. That's Eve. 
That's human fallen nature. It's born into us to be rebels. The Bible goes as far as to tell us that we are actually haters of God. We're anti-God in fallen in a fallen state. Now, when you see that and you consider that and you say, what about my biblical worldview? The only other option that the world has to offer, the lie that it keeps selling all the time, is that man is basically good. That's not what the Bible says. The biblical worldview says, I am fallen. I'm born in sin. I'm shaped in iniquity. Sin happened in Adam and it's been passed down to every generation. Therefore, I am a sinner. And I'm separated from God because of my sin. And that's a biblical worldview. No, you're basically good. You know, it's just your elements. It's your circumstances. You know, if we could change all that around you, you'd be wonderful. You would rise to the occasion. Listen, Jeremiah 17. I'm going to give you two more verses here on the way back to Genesis 5. I'll give you one in Jeremiah 17. Verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The heart is deceitful above all things. Of all the things that it can be, stack them up. And on top is this desperate wickedness. You can try and push it down. You can try and throw other things on top and mask it. But left to yourself, the Bible says you are desperately wicked. And deceitful above everything. Maybe you'll just mutter under your breath, well, that's me. Galatians chapter 5. Paul the Apostle's writing. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. My Bible has Spirit capitalized. That means it's references to God. Spirit, not just Spirit. But the capital S spirit means it's talking about the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And it tells me that these things are contrary. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. Let's define the word flesh just for a moment because we don't want to think it's our bodies. In the Greek, there are two words. One is soma. That means your body. God loves your body. He wants your body. He created it in the image of God. It has the imprint of his his nature and stamp of his Form, uh, we see it in Jesus as the incarnate God, God in the flesh. Jesus looks like you and I. In his resurrection, they saw him in his bodily form. God likes your body. But the other word for flesh, which is in this passage, is sarx in the Greek. And it means carnal nature, the fallen state of man. That which says it's all about me and i got to satisfy me and whatever I want I should get. And boy, doesn't our culture support that. Uh huh. <laughs> it's in me too. When I was in uh, Baker, Baton Rouge, there in Louisiana, uh, after one of the sessions, got home to the hotel late at night, and there was a Burger King in a subway next door. Went over to get something to eat, and uh, 
That new little girl working there, she'd only been on three days, and she kept saying out loud as she looked at the customers who were lining up forever, it seemed. She kept saying, I've only been here three days. I've received no training, and they're going to fire me. Because she didn't, she couldn't even get the thing to come on. She couldn't even push the right buttons. And, and she was just, you could almost see the sweat running off her brow, the pressure. Uh, people were driving away from the drive-thru, just pulling out and going on. A lady in front of me in line said, I'm going, I'm going to go out and go through the drive-thru. It seems to be moving quicker. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we are used to like, get it now, 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 now. And I found in me, I said, boy, this is taking a long time. I want to jump the counter, help her. So, let me come here. Let me show you how this little thing. I'll look at turn this thing around. I'll show you how it works. I can figure this out. People were walking out mad, and they, <laughs> I finally got our, our stuff. Me and the guy I was with. And we sat down in the drive-through. They said, "You know, tell you your order's not ready. Pull up and let somebody else." And I thought, poor guy. This guy that just pulled up and is now waiting is going to be here all night. He's going to get mad and just drive off without his food. It's not going to happen for this guy. Somebody else came in from the conference and says, I just thought I'd get a quick bite to eat. I said, quick is not the word here. <laughs> Even though Burger King says you can have it your way and you can have it all you want right now, hurry up, speed. I found in myself this thing of, of urgency saying, this isn't how we've been trained for it to work. It's supposed to be fast. And if I'd have come in and said, you know what, let's just get a little slow dinner, I could have waited for it. But that's, it's in us. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you'll not, you're not under the law. Now here's a list. Listen for yourself in here. Maybe underline a couple of these and say, this is where I used to live. Now the works of the flesh, the carnal nature, the fallen state of man are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and if that weren't enough, he says, and the like. All things like, I, this is not an exhaustive list, but it became exhausting. And the like. Open-ended. Did you find yourself in there somewhere? Say, golly, I used to live here. Mm -hmm. In many of these things. I am proof, you are proof, that we are and have come from a fallen condition than from the one God designed for us, that perfect creation of man. I said we'd be back on our way to Genesis. I want to pick up in... Chapter 6, just one verse, 6 verse 5. We can take 6 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to men. I just want to point out this is now 10 generations after Adam. 10 generations later, Adam and Eve in the garden. Lots of procreation has taken place. Lots of people have been born. The earth is being populated. And ten generations later, this happens. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you think the premise 
that is put in as a lie that says man is basically good. He will rise to the occasion. Things will get better if we just let him act out and be himself. There's proof here that ten generations from the first couple, the only thing that had happened is you had everybody who had only this in their hearts to be evil. Continually. It doesn't get better. This nature, this carnal, this flesh, does not improve when left alone. Therefore, you have to take that lie and throw it away. If you've been told man is basically good, have you ever tried to witness to somebody, share Jesus with them and say, I'm I'm a good person. What are they saying? They're saying that everything around me growing up told me that I was basically good and I'm a nice guy. Well, I don't do like him and him and him and her. And I don't do those things. Therefore, if I don't do those things, I'm okay. I've never done this. this Wait, let's just pull up the Ten Commandments, which they threw out of your schools. when they took away prayer and said, we're not going to believe in these things anymore. And just take the top ten. Run down them. And as soon as you get to thou shalt not bear false witness, or down south, the Ten Commandments is more like, y'all not lie. (laughs) Y'all go lie. Yeah. And you have to stop right there and say, all of us have lied to somebody at some time. And when God says, if you break one law, you're guilty of all of them. There's none of us that can pass the test that says man is basically good and will rise to the occasion. You've got to pull that out of your head and say, that's not true. The Bible tells me it's not true. The truth is what God says about me, and that is that I was made to be perfect, but in my first state I chose to rebel against his ways, and therefore I live in a fallen nature that is very carnal and flesh-driven. And I'm in trouble. Because in Hebrews 9.27 it says, It's appointed unto men once to die. And then comes the judgment. In Jeremiah 17, verse 10, it says, God is, 9 and 10, it says, God is watching out, right? Your heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. And uh, God is watching, keeping track, if you will, and will reward every one of us according to what? Our own works. Say, wait, God's got the scorebook. At some point, I'm going to die. I only get this to do this one time. There's only one life to live, and then when I die, and then will come the judgment in which I'll be rewarded according to my works. Listen, we're in trouble. Right? We are, we, our scorebook doesn't add up right. Thank you for adjusting that. I know it's winter already, but we don't need to reinforce it. There's snow on the back roof of the church still. Came home about 1.30 in the morning on Friday night from LAX and came across the dam and came around the corner of Fonsky and it was snowing. I thought, no, please don't. Isn't it funny? We we know it's coming, but we really don't want it to come. Then when it comes, we're happy about it. We are so fickle. See if we and I said I go Genesis Revelation, so I'll give you a couple out of Revelation here. Revelation twenty fifteen. We have to form the way we believe based on what the Bible says. And the end result in Revelation 20, 15, I mean, we're, right, we got like two chapters to the end here, right? And it says this, simple one verse, and anyone not found written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. There's only two places we're going when this is over, right? You live once, you die, you're rewarded according to your own works. If you're trying to do it on yourself and do it by yourself, then, then your works are what are you going to be judged on. And either name, your name's going to be written in the book of life or you're going to be cast in the lake of fire, heaven or hell. This is truth. There's a God. He created man in his image. There's a devil who hates God and is doing everything he can to lie to us every day so that we will not in any way be inclined to fulfill what we were designed for and become like Christ. I know my Bible tells me that every day there is a process going on in my life where he is conforming me to the image of Jesus. And that's happening by pounding on the outside and conforming me and working on the inside by his spirit so that I voluntarily, willfully want to conform to the image of Jesus. This is where we're going. But if I have a premise in my mind that says, well, I'm basically good, why is there a need for change? It just doesn't get any better than this. That's a lie. So what do we need? We need divine grace. You know, you were in Genesis 5, right? Or 6. Did I, I close, turn mine to Revelation? I like this. you got to see this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, in verse 5, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, I've got it underlined. You might want to do the same. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. The grace of God is right there in the sixth chapter of Genesis. It's not just a New Testament thing. Because Noah was a fallen man also. His family was born in sin and iniquity. Ten generations after the first couple, it was on everybody. I'm not saying Noah was an intently bad man, but he was your average guy. Born in sin and had a carnal nature. But the Bible says he found grace in the eyes of God. What's grace? Grace is, we call it, unmerited favor. It's the fact that God loves you anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he chooses to love you and I. He looks at us the way we are when we get out of bed and our hair's going six directions. And we don't even know what time it is. And he says, I love you. Hmm? Not that the psalmist said, and when I awake... He's still with me. I love the picture. I know I probably say it too often, but it's just I get this visual in my mind that when I'm laying in bed and the drool's going down the side, (laughs) tongue's hanging out, and I'm snorting away, and I wake up, and his face is right here. (laughs) He's saying, good morning. I've been waiting for the moment to see you again. I'm right here the whole time because I love you. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Now you're starting to cheer up because of this. I can see it. You're going, oh, there's the good news. That's why we call the gospel the good news. We need grace. We need regeneration. We need to be redeemed from this state. It had to happen. Hebrews chapter 9.
And I, I referred to verse 27 as, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. He is coming again. But we can't just skip to his coming again because we have to acknowledge he came the first time. God was manifest, came and bore our image. He was born in the flesh. He lived, the Bible says, without sin. We know that the wages of sin is death, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3.23. The wages of sin is death. That means we're all going to die. And then comes the judgment. Based on my works, I'm in trouble. But Jesus steps in. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God chose by his grace, like he did on Noah, to extend his grace and his unmerited favor and his willing love in your and my direction to say, come back to me, I'm going to buy you back. You sold yourselves from Adam all the way through into sin and carnality and anti-godness, but there is a hope. There is redemption. There is regeneration. Revelation chapter 5. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your blood. Thank you for being willing to pay the price for me and for all of us. Well, this is different. It's starting to feel a little more like Palm Desert now. Wow. Now, if you start falling asleep, we're going to turn the icer back on. <laughs> Rome, uh, Revelation 5, verse 8. And I know we're lifting this story kind of out in the middle. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. The, who's the Lamb? Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Remember in Psalm 8, it said that we were supposed to have dominion. In Genesis, he said, Adam, take dominion. Rule over all this. This is yours. This is my design for you. This is the garden. This is everything I've created. You're in charge. Be in dominion. Rule over it all. Be its master. Be my son. I put it in your hands. And he chooses to fall from that state. And God takes the initiative to send his one and only son. We know the scripture, John 3.16, right? It's all over the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish in their own record of carnality. Insert it. But have everlasting life. Noah found grace. You and I have found grace. The same grace that buys us back from our fallen state. What is redemption? Redemption means that something was lost or put in hock to another owner. And for me to redeem it back, I have to pay the price and buy it Back to myself. Redeem it. God came and put Jesus' blood on the line and bought us back out of every... What does it say? 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. How many of you have ever traveled out of the country to a third world nation? Good. Lots of us have. Hope, hope you get the chance to do that. But until you do, you will probably not relate strongly to what I'm about to say. But hold on. Jesus isn't an American. <laughs> we tend to think the whole world and its religion and its faith looks like ours. At the conference, I was walking in and out of the, the sanctuary where it was being held, and I kept noticing this one large, very, very black man. And he had a presence about him that was just, he was enormous. Even if he'd have been four foot six, he'd have felt enormous. You know, he was just that way. And I kept seeing him, and we kept catching eyes. And I would wave at him, and I thought, you know, he was a local guy from Baton Rouge or something. And, and uh, he kept looking at me, and we always we were in these crowds that were moving in opposite directions. This happened numerous times, but we never did meet. And then uh, I climb on the first plane out of Baton Rouge, heading back to Atlanta, and the seat next to me is empty until this man walks into the plane. And he sits down in that chair. I said, my name's Jeff. How did you like the conference? He says, my name is Patrick. And I've been wondering about you. It was kind of that way, you know. And uh, I said, well, Patrick, who are you? He said, I'm a bishop over 400 churches in Uganda. And you know what? You guys relate to Bishop Abel. Kenya, and he was like an Abel. So I have 400 churches in Uganda. So I have two orphanages, and they hold 1,900 children. And uh, I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. He said, somebody told me I should come to this conference because maybe at this conference I might be able to link up with a few people that maybe could help us in our work in Uganda. And then he turned and looked at me. He said, and because there are no coincidences in God, I'm sitting next to you. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I, I didn't come here to go to Uganda. <laughs> you know? Okay, well, let's talk about it, Patrick. First, tell me about your family. He said, well, I have four children. I have two boys and two girls. And he explained, been married about 26 years. And, and so this is what dads do when they're on the plane. I said, well, I have four also. I have two girls and two boys just like you. I said, but Patrick, I have four grandchildren and another one on the way. It was kind of the suspenders moment. <laughs> and we were having a good time. And, he's, and then he said, oh, he says, I have uh, 1,900 grandchildren. <laughs> they all call me dad. I said, trump card, you win. <laughs> you win. All the bragging rights are gone now. And then we shared and we talked, and I thought of this verse, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, God is expending his grace and his mercy to redeem us to buy us back from this fallen state. We cannot get back any other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It is the only way home. It is the only way to find ourselves back in a regenerated, redeemed state where we were made to be rulers and in dominion and living out the kingdom of God on the earth again, taking back our rightful place as his sons and daughters. And so we're grateful to God for the blood of Jesus because it's the only purchase price that can be made. Now man, seeing the lies that are in society, 
where we say man needs divine grace, regeneration, and redemption, the world and secular religions say man must save himself through self-oriented pursuits. Save ourselves. Survival of the fittest. If you're not in a cell, please, this, this thing right here. Even if you say, well, I'm never going to be, I'm not going to live in a cell. I don't want to be in a cell for a long time. At least get in one for the next 10 weeks, please. Give yourself the favor of aligning yourself with what God has brought us into in discovering truth and a biblical worldview. You need it. Everything else around you is trying to tear it out of you. We're trying to build it into you. And we've got faithful leaders all over the, uh, you know, they're listed right here. I can make them stand up. And I thought about doing an altar call. Just have balls stand here and say, now nobody gets out of here. Until you meet one of these people and find out where you fit and where your time slots. There's plenty. There's no excuse. If you get on here and say, well, none of these work for me. You come and tell me that. I will build one that will work for you. We can do that. But you need to get a hold of truth that will hold you stable. If you're visiting with us, you're welcome to stay with us for another 10 or 12 weeks. Okay, we'll keep you. You can sneak in here for 10 weeks and be part of what we're doing because in the cell, in the lighthouses, we're going to view the information. There's a lot to be had, but we're not trying to gain more information. We're trying to find transformation of our lives that extract from us the lives of the world and put back what the Bible tells us is truth. And right now we need it more than ever. You know, when we looked at that video a while ago and the question might come up in your mind like it has mine, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where we have to go out to vote to hold on to what is sacred and life-giving? Why do we live in a culture and a society that is tearing itself apart with stupidity? It just comes up in my mind that we are so stupid. Oh, man is ultimately good. Leave him to himself. It'll get better. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. So we can't trust that lie. We have got to put our foundation in the scriptures and understand how things work and begin to work them that way. Acts 17.28 says this, In Him we live and move and have our being. Now there's truth. Life comes from God. Not from the goo. Not from the mess, not from the amoebas, not from the big bangs, not from whatever other theory man wants to come up with. God, in Him we live. Life comes from God. We move. That is our volition. That which makes us mobile. And choices we make to go here and there come from God. Our choices are motivated by who He is and what He says. And we have our being. The very truth that we mentioned a while ago. When I wake up and inhale, and I know it's another day, I understand that it's just because He lives that I live again. It's because he's chosen for me to, today, I have another day to live for him. I have my very existence because of God. What is man? Hebrews chapter 2, last scripture. It's a refrain from, it's actually a quote from Psalm 8 where we started this morning. Verse 6, one testified in a certain place saying... And the quote is from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all subjection in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, who is crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. What is man? Man was a perfect creation to rule and reign alongside of God his Father. To be in fellowship with the one who made him. And to live it out forever. He fell. He needs grace. He needs redemption. He needs regeneration to come back into that place where God says, I'll put everything under your feet. You know, we're supposed to be ruling. We're supposed to be leading. The kingdom of God is supposed to be advancing. We don't lose in the end. Amen? Amen. Come on. And uh, we're supposed to be making things go the way they should go where we live. And then expand from where we live into all the parts of the earth. And encourage people like uh, Bishop Patrick to do it where he lives. And Dr. Cho do it where he lives. And Larry Stockdale do it where he lives. And all of us do where we live. Bring the kingdom of God and its influence into where we live. We're called to it. What is man? He's God's agency for taking dominion in the earth. And subduing all things. And we haven't seen all those things put under our feet yet. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Who was suffered for us. Tasted death for every one of us. Makes the way home. Not just so we can slide into home safely. you know. But he's made the way back for us. So that our, our carnal nature can come back under the rule of the Spirit. And we can become sons and daughters once again in this life. Francis Bacon said, it is a poor center of a man's life himself. you got to live for something bigger than you. And the world, that's all it has to offer. Live for you. Live for you. You be the center of your universe. You be the all in all. And you'll rise to the occasion and you'll be wonderful and you'll be great. All the while, the Bible screams and says, you're fallen. You need grace. You need regeneration. You need mercy. You need the blood of Jesus to buy you back out of your lostness and make you in union again with your Creator and to come back into that state of being a son and daughter of God. Pray with me. Father, we close our eyes. We bow our heads before you because you deserve our worship. And you deserve a moment for us to Just sit before you and honestly say, thank you. Thank you for providing the way back. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Father, we also acknowledge that in many ways we've lived according to the carnal flesh, contrary to the spirit. We've allowed the old man's nature to live on because the world around us constantly tells us that's how it should work. That we should take care of ourselves and we should have it our way like at Burger King. But you've said, if we have it our way, we're going to come under judgment. If we come under judgment by our own works, we will not measure up and pass the test. We can't. We can't ever be good enough on our own. 
to earn our way into heaven and forgiveness. We must come to the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice made on our behalf. And we thank you for making a way for us. And I want to say this while we're praying. And I ask that you just not be looking around. We're not trying to embarrass anybody. I want to give an opportunity here that if you've come this morning and you finally understood, the, the blinders have come off your mind and your eyes, and you say, I didn't realize that I was a sinner. I thought I was a good person. And you may have tried really hard to be a good person. But the Bible tells you this morning that you can't ever be good enough on your own. You need Jesus. You need to acknowledge that he died in your place. And when he shed his blood, he became the lamb, the sacrifice for your sin. And you are there at the cross. Your sins killed him. And you need to acknowledge before him today that you are a sinner and that you need to be saved. If that's you this morning, I want you to pray with me this prayer. And church, feel free to pray with us and support them in it. But to the one who's praying this prayer for the first time, I'm saying don't hide in the crowd right now. Get honest between you and God. Because he's listening. Pray this with me. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge this morning that you are God and I am not. I'm a sinner. Your word says I've sinned. I've broken your commandments. I've lived against you and I don't want to any longer. In my confession of sin, I ask you to forgive me. Buy me back by the blood of Jesus. I want to belong to you. I want the gift of eternal life. I want to live the way you created me to live. Thank you for forgiving me. And making me a new person today. Teach me your word. Teach me your ways. And help me get to know you better. I ask this through Jesus, your son. As I commit my life to you. Amen. And Father, I pray for those who have asked this to occur. That you will cover them right now. With your protection and your hand of mercy. And you will draw them close to yourself. And you will wash away their sin. That you'll make them know that their past is forgiven. That they'll go out of here today understanding that they're a new person in Christ. And that they can live the way you made them to live. Lord, I pray that you'll protect them from the enemy. And begin even now to strip away from them the layers of lies that he has tried to put on their minds to keep them away from you. Thank you for drawing them here today. Thank you for your mercy in that regard and your grace is so evident. We love you, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing before you go. Some of you asked Jesus to do that for you today. You prayed. You meant that. Here's your first thing to do. Before you get out of this parking lot today, maybe before you leave this room, you need to tell somebody that you came with, or if you, don't, if you didn't come with anybody, tell a perfect stranger. They won't be perfect, but they'll be a stranger. But tell, the, tell somebody. Because it's a requirement that once you've asked Jesus to be in your heart, that you become a witness for him. And so you need to tell somebody. 
to say, I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. And then say, what do I do next? Because there is a next. Okay? And, and if you're the one they're talking to, you better know what they do next. Amen? If you don't know what to tell them to do next, find somebody that can help you. Grab one of the cell leaders. Uh, how many are cell leaders? Raise your hands right here. See, these people are all around us here. These are all leaders. They can help. All right? And then you need to get hooked into one of these lighthouses. you got to hook up with a group of people that you can meet with every week. You're like a brand new little flower. You need to be put inside the, the pot where you can grow. Okay? If you just go out as a little flower, you're going to wilt by the end of the day. And the enemy of your soul, who maybe you didn't even think was real before today, is going to be lying to you before you get home saying, that's not real, it didn't really happen, just forget that, don't ever go back there. He's going to feed your mind with lies to keep you from following Jesus. And you can just say, hey, you're a liar. Get away from me in Jesus' name because his blood bought me back. I'm good. I'm, I belong to God. You don't, I don't belong to you anymore. And I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Jesus. He bought me. He paid for me. I'm his. And you just tell the devil, take a hike. You can say, take a hike in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So now you're going to tell somebody before you get to the parking lot or before you leave this room that you ask Jesus in your heart. And when they tell you that, take them home with you. You know what I mean? Disciple them. It's time to disciple people. It's time to help them grow. Get them in your cell. If you're not in a cell, by the end of today, I'm coming to your house. No. Just kidding. Uh, that's not a threat. It's an encouragement. You need to be in a group of people and get the rest of the Truth Project. Okay? God bless you. Thanks for coming. It's been a good day in the house. Amen. Amen.